This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello there. This is um, David A. Brenner. I um, want to welcome you to our um, Health Talks. Um, the topic of our Health Talks today is how COVID-19 can impact issues of the heart and even deeper, how we are at the forefront of providing care during this unprecedented time. I hope you are all okay. I, I miss seeing you a lot. I, I, I used to have so much fun to see you in real time um, when we did these talks, but this will have to be the second best thing. This is a challenging time for, for all of us. Um, I just wanna very briefly tell you what's going on at UC San Diego Health. Um, we have been treating COVID-19 patients since the very beginning. Some of the very first patients in the United States were treated by us. And now we are getting patients from the community, from skilled nursing facilities, and also um, on the border, where it's become a, um, a hotbed of um, COVID-19 in, in border health. So we've been doing COVID-19 patients, but we've also decreased the hospital's um, 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 census in case there's a surge. So we are prepared for a surge in case even more patients um, require our care. And um, we have been at the forefront of testing. More testing has been done at UC San Diego than any other UC or um, at almost any other place other, other than um, a few places like New York, Detroit. And finally, we've been doing a lot of research at both um, testing drugs, developing improved diagnostics, um, looking at basic biology of COVID-19. So with that, um, we have a word from um, Patty Mason. She sends her regrets. She has a conflicting meeting about COVID-19 right now. Um, so instead we video recorded um, her welcome. So if we can turn to that now, we'll hear a word from Patty Mason, the CEO of UC San Diego Health. Good evening, I'm Patty Mason, CEO of UC San Diego Health. I thought I would pr provide you a brief update on what's happening here at the health system uh, in the context of this uh, pandemic. So today, uh, this is Monday when I'm making this recording, marks day 100 since UC San Diego Health began our journey through uh, managing through the COVID-19 pandemic. We saw our first patients in February when groups were evacuated from Wuhan, China to Miramar, and we, we received the first couple of patients uh, from, from the base. Uh, one was quite sick, and we had the opportunity to use uh, a, a new drug, a new therapeutic drug, uh, which today now has been approved for treatment, uh, redesivir. And uh, so we were one of the very first in the country to um, apply that, that drug that is now standard of care. Um, which is sort of fitting that that happened at UC San Diego Health. That's, um, you know, our, our special sweet spot in, in the region. Um, when the county first called and said that they had patients coming from China and would we take them, of course, my answer was yes. I thought UC San Diego Health was really the most appropriate place to take care of patients. And um, we have this incredibly deep bench of physician scientists and infectious disease you know, that started very early in the early 1980s in the management of HIV and AIDS patients um, and has continued to grow and, and blossom ever since. So we have this incredible group of uh, infectious disease specialists, of epidemiologists, and many other uh, specialties that are helping us manage through the pandemic. Um, since our, those first uh, several patients, we have been taking care of patients 
every day. Today we have an average of 25 to 30 patients a day in our in our two facilities. Um, they're cohorted in in special units in in uh, Hillcrest and in Jacobs Medical Center, and we care for those patients um, with this very deep critical care team who um, have worked together to um, manage uh, within these these very stressful environments. Um, as you all know, when the governor passed the stay at home order. Um, we were required to to basically decant our health system of all other types of care. So a lot, all our surgeries and procedures um, were shut down and we um, uh, were able to create about 200 beds availability for potential patients as we were um, looking at and projecting a surge in a, in a peak of, of patients. As it turned out in California and in San Diego specifically, um, public health measures were put into place relatively quickly. Um, the stay-at-home orders really has helped so that the, the uh, virus has not passed all that quickly. And we hit the peak a couple of weeks ago in, in mid-April at 30 patients. And we've been staying around 30 patients, 25 to 30 patients ever since. Um, we're hoping to see those numbers decline. But unfortunately, right now, the, um, there are two areas where there are hot spots that um, continue to provide patients. One is in our skilled nursing facilities, and there are um, a lot of um, breakouts in skilled nursing facilities. I know you're all aware of, of those risks and are as concerned as I am about patients in those facilities. I think there are 44 different unique uh, outbreaks in skilled nursing facilities in San Diego, so we do see patients from, from there. Um, we also have a very um, touchy situation in, in Tijuana uh, where um, there is a real... Uh, humanitarian crisis evolving and patients coming across the border for care. Um, primarily right now, they are uh, ending up at Sharp Chula Vista or, Ship, or Scripps Chula Vista. Um, some of the most uh, sick and complex patients um, actually get transferred here and we take care of them here. I think you'd all be proud of the fact that all of the, all of the health system CEOs in the county work really closely together in, in managing through the pandemic. Uh, we have a call every single week and work together to figure out um, how we're going to be able to provide care. And so the region is really, um, while we are, have historically been very competitive, you know, we, we are really working um, closely together um, to try to try to work through this in the best way possible for the region. The COVID pandemic has had a really significant impact on the financial stability of the health system. Uh, between March and June of, of this year, we'll lose about $170 million uh, off of our, our um, margin um, just because of having to slow down all the rest of our healthcare. Uh, we are projected in FY21, that's July of this year to June of next year, uh, to lose an additional $200 million as a result of caring for patients in this COVID environment. So it's a very stressful, challenging time for us financially, and it will have implications on many of our capital projects and our expansion. We're working through those strategies now uh, to, to figure out the best way to approach the next three to five years as we, we look to recover from the pandemic. UC San Diego um, Health stands out, um, especially in a couple of areas. Um, first, um, we were because probably we were the first to get patients from uh, from Miramar. Um, we worked on developing our our uh, protective equipment for our healthcare employees 
really rapidly. And so we, um, we've developed quite a nice inventory of what was, what we call PPE, the protective equipment for our healthcare workers. So, um, so that our workers are in a, in a situation with where they're very, very safe. Um, the other place where we've been in, incredible exemplars is in um, lab testing and our uh, lab and, and pathology leadership um, set up uh, testing for the virus quite early on as an academic medical center. We were uh, granted permission from the FDA to start testing early and now we can test up to 1,000, 1,500 um, tests a day and then working up to um, probably five, five to 10,000 over time. Um, we focused our testing on symptomatic patients originally, um, but now we're really testing a lot of um, patients as well as healthcare workers. If you're coming in for a procedure or a surgery at UC San, San Diego Health today, we do test you for the virus ahead of time. Um, we were also testing all our healthcare workers in the emergency department and the ICUs and the COVID units uh, and across the system so far, and this is really remarkable, so far, we have tested 2,500 of our team members, physicians, nurses, health, uh, housekeepers, and of the 2,500 that we've tested, only one is, has tested positive, an asymptomatic positive patient, uh, positive healthcare worker. Um, now, what does that mean? To, to me, that means we can be optimistic that um, we don't have a high prevalence of the virus in our system right now, that our masking policy is working, and that uh, people are safe when they come here. We test all of our um, surgical patients, as I said, and again, we've tested almost 2,000 surgical patients, and only one has tested positive. So again, I, I want the community to feel comfortable that they can get care here safely. One thing that we've seen as a result of the pandemic is a lot of people aren't coming in for just basic healthcare needs. Um, people with cancer, cardiovascular problems are not coming in for care. And so what we're really trying to do is get the word out that it is safe to come in and get your, your care, especially if you have some, some very um, acute, acute illnesses. Um, so if I could leave you with a final message, it would be to let your, your friends and neighbors to know that if they have healthcare needs, um, they should feel comfortable coming in and getting care at UC San Diego Health. Thank you. So, um, as you know, um, we have organized cardiovascular medicine, both care and research at UC San Diego, into a new um, cardiovascular institute. And we have um, two directors, um, one for medicine and one for surgery, and they're both going to speak today. Dr. Shami Mahmood is the Executive Director for Medicine at the Cardiovascular Institute, and he holds the Edith and William Perlman Chair in Clinical Cardiology. He has built one of the largest academic cardiovascular programs in the Western United States. He runs the um, Interventional Cardiology and Cardiac Cath Lab at UC San Diego, and he was um, President of the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention. Dr. Uh, Mike Madani, is Executive Director of Surgery at the Cardiovascular Institute and holds the John G. Picard Chair in Cardio Cardiac Surgery. Um, he is um, one of the um, instrumental people in, in developing um, novel approaches to cardiovascular surgery, including a leader in the um, uh, pulmonary thromboembolectomy um, surgery. He has set up um, CT surgery programs um, throughout the world 
and he has been named um, UC San Diego Physician of the Year. So I am going to turn this over um, to Dr. Um, Mahmoud and Madani, and then we will have questions at the end. Thank you. Thank you, David. And clearly both Michael and I are working, as you can see by the outfits that we've got on. Um, so uh, I, think, uh, I think, Michael, why don't I go ahead and start just a sure. brief kind of, uh, uh, I'm gonna take a step back and review for everybody the uh, cardiac implications of COVID-19. And then we'll talk about uh, uh, how we're treating patients today. But just a few things to remember. Uh, the primary manifestations of the disease are obviously uh, pulmonary, but there are a few unique things associated with uh, cardiac disease. The one thing we've learned is there's a COVID-19 associated myocarditis. What that means is the virus actually can get into the heart muscle and lead to dysfunction of the heart muscle. And there's inflammation associated with it and the heart muscle doesn't function as well. A second problem that's been recognized is that you can get thrombosis or clot formation within the arteries of the heart. Third, you can get coronary spasm where the arteries of the heart can actually just shut down transiently and then they can open up again. So these are at least three now known and recognized manifestations of uh, COVID-19 associated cardiac disorders. You can also get some abnormal heart rhythms uh, of the heart. And uh, there's also can be thrombus or clot formation, both because of the virus, as well as people who have known cardiovascular disease are at higher risk of having uh, heart attacks. Now, I've, this is not necessarily meant to be an alarmist uh, webinar. The goal is for everyone to know that there are certain things that can happen because of COVID-19 that can affect the heart, and, and we have strategies by which we can treat them. I think the more important point to emphasize is if you look at not just San Diego, but around the United States, the number of people with heart attacks who are coming into the hospital has decreased by 40%. And that's uniform all over the country. Places where there's very low COVID and places where there's very high prevalence of COVID. And the reason that most of us feel that is going on is because patients are just staying at home. They're having some symptoms that would be in, say, six months ago, a little shortness of breath or chest tightness or arm discomfort, they would come rushing into the hospital. Now everyone is so worried that if I go to the hospital, I might be at risk for COVID-19, uh, and therefore I'm just going to sit at home. As a result, more people are staying at home, having heart attacks, which has nothing to do with COVID-19. And uh, Patty mentioned it in her introduction, and I would like to reiterate that if you have any such symptoms, this is shortness of breath, chest tightness, um, numbness going down your arm, those are classic symptoms of either unstable angina or having a heart attack, and we want people to come into the hospital. The hospital is where you need to come. It's a safe environment. And over the next 45 minutes, I think we will tell you stepwise the measures that we've taken uh, to ensure that safety for our patients. So I think I'll turn it over to Michael and Dr. Madani can go over some of the strategies that we have taken uh, 
to ensure the safety of our patients. And, and the, these strategies are across the board, whether we talk about patients requiring cardiac surgery, cardiac procedures, or clinic visits. Michael? Yeah, thank you, Shami, and uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Brenner. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. And as uh, Dr. Brenner mentioned, I, I really wish that uh, we were in person. I do miss a lot of you guys and wish that uh, we could do this in person. Uh, before I start, I really want to thank um, Patty, um, Dr. Brenner, and Dr. Steve Garfin Ardeen for their leadership throughout this uh, really challenging times. Um, I keep in touch with a lot of my colleagues around the country, around the world, and what UCSD has accomplished is, is uh, truly uh, unbelievable and, and a model for a lot of centers. Uh, you heard earlier, um, we uh, have tested uh, close to 3,000 now uh, faculty, nurses, and, and staff, and only have one positive. I mean, that's a testament of the precautions that we've been taking within the health system, and that goes uh, with the patients as well. Um, and uh, we've right from the beginning, we had implemented a lot of safe measures, again, thanks to the leadership here, uh, making staff feel safe, uh, making all of us feel safe to come to work every single day and take care of our patients like we do every day. There are a lot of unknowns. We don't know all the answers about COVID, but what we do know is how to protect uh, our patients and how to protect ourselves so we can continue uh, to provide care for them. Um, in cardiac surgery, as, as was mentioned earlier, you know, ever since the mandate came by the governor and state of uh, California, we stopped doing what was considered non-essential surgeries. Now you can imagine not many cardiac procedures are elective, but there are some that could be considered uh, semi-elective or non-essential that can be delayed a little bit, maybe a few weeks, maybe a month or two. And that gave us a lot of capacity within the health system and we slowed down. Of course, we continue to do emergency and urgent operations. And we saw a decline of probably about 25, 30%, um, and soon realized that actually, uh, with all the preparation that we've done, uh, we did have a lot of capacity. And uh, about two and a half weeks ago or so, we started opening uh, the door for what is um, what may be considered semi-elective cases. And now we've been uh, as busy as we are, you know, and surprisingly, we saw a lot of patients who hadn't come uh, when they were symptomatic and they were concerned about coming to the hospital. And um, a number of these patients that have shown up. And of course, we continued our emergencies and transplants and, and all the other surgeries. And it is uh, truly a safe environment. So I, I do want, I want to reemphasize um, Patty Mason's message to you and your friends that if you have symptoms, please don't be scared of coming to the hospital. Uh, there, there are a lot of uh, safeguard measures. Um, if you're coming as a patient to have surgery, you're getting tested. Us, all of us are getting tested. I was just tested a couple of days ago and uh, was a little disappointed that my antibodies were, were negative, but uh, both uh, tests came back negative. And um, we will continue to test uh, as many patients and staff as we can. Um, and for the Cardiovascular Institute, uh, these measures, like I said, have been very helpful. They put staff at ease, they put our patients at ease, 
And uh, because of that, we've been able to uh, increase the number of surgeries that we're doing right now. And, and as you can see, I just came out of the operating room and we had a relatively uh, urgent patient who couldn't wait you know, a month or two uh, that um, uh, we uh, finished uh, just, just about an hour or so ago. So um, with that, I, I do want to also say that we are at the forefront in terms of caring of, uh, for COVID patients. We reserved, actually, we shut down one of our cardiac rooms. We only have four cardiac rooms in the Cardiovascular Institute, and we shut it down and completely prepared it for a potential COVID patient who may have a heart attack, who may need an emergency surgery. And um, that room has now been allowed to be utilized for other patients because we never had a COVID patient in that emergency. Um, and um, if, if we do get a potential COVID patient who needs an emergency operation, we do have a room dedicated in Jacobs Medical Center that is, that is separate than the other operating rooms. I also wanna mention that um, throughout this uh, pandemic, a lot of centers around the county have been uh, looking up to us for their sick patients. Um, we have our physicians going to other hospitals, taking care of patients, uh, giving advice, uh, taking care of the event management. Uh, we have physicians going to Tijuana. Uh, we have a situation south of the border. So volunteer nurses, volunteer physicians who are going there helping uh, to manage some of these patients so they don't overflow past the border. Unfortunately, the border is still open and a lot of uh, citizens and green card holders obviously still cross the border for their jobs. And that's a, uh, a little bit of a tough situation, but our physicians and nurses here are helping down in Tijuana to, to really minimize potential spill. Here at UCSD, um, we have now put a total of eight uh, COVID patients on what we call ECMO. This is essentially cardiopulmonary bypass machine. So uh, as you can imagine, you know, roughly about 5% of patients who do get uh, COVID end up being uh, very sick and requiring uh, ventilation, hospitalization, and ICU care. And of those 5%, a fraction will end up uh, getting um, to the point that their lungs and heart essentially shuts down and they need uh, cardiopulmonary support, essentially a bypass machine. And we've had eight of those patients so far that we've taken care of. Um, this is, this is a, a huge testament to the team of surgeons and cardiologists and physicians who are here. And of these eight patients, actually five have been transported in. We've, we've never done that. So as you can imagine, we've, uh, we've sent a team of physicians and surgeons and nurses out to the community and brought sick patients. These are young, otherwise healthy patients who we think they're going to recover. They just need some time uh, to allow the lungs um, and the heart to recover. We've had two patients actually from the Imperial County, from El Centro, that have been transferred uh, to UCSD. And we've had another three patients, two from Scripps and one from Sharp, that um, have been put on cardiopulmonary bypass by our team at their hospital and then transported um, with the heart lung machine, you know, in an ambulance with a special team back to UCSD and are getting um, uh, taken care of right now. So uh, we continue to obviously uh, take care of our sick patients here, but also continue to contribute to the 
uh, community as a whole. Um, and I could not really be more proud of the uh, team that we have here, the physicians, nurses, um, uh, you know, Patty mentioned housekeepers, everybody who's coming to work and, and uh, continuing to take care of patients. Shami, I hand, hand it out to you if you have anything else to say before we go to questions. Sure. Uh, I think uh, let, me, let me finish up by uh, mentioning all, all of the safety measures and further emphasize them. So uh, when two months ago, the start of the pandemic, all of our clinic visits have been converted to uh, virtual. So we were doing them either telephonically or through video. We have uh, now gotten to where this week, 65% of our clinic visits are in person. We're still uh, able to offer a video visits or telephone visits uh, for patients who would prefer that. But we are seeing all new consultations back uh, in person. And we feel, feel that that's very important. Uh, stress testing, echocardiography uh, is back full-fledged and uh, available. For anybody who needs a heart catheterization, an angioplasty procedure, a pacemaker, uh, we're back on to full services and offering that uh, throughout uh, the week. Uh, an important point that Dr. Madani mentioned, and I'll uh, reiterate, we have uh, committed one cath lab for any cardiac procedures, catheterizations, angioplasties, pacemakers uh, for any COVID patients. So we're not mixing anybody else uh, in that lab. It's literally been sitting there now for two months and hasn't been used a single time because we've not had to uh, bring any COVID patient for, for a cardiovascular procedure to the cath lab. But if that were to occur, they go to a separate uh, dedicated lab. And uh, the cardiovascular center itself uh, is not where any COVID patients are to uh, stay in an inpatient uh, unit. Uh, there's a dedicated unit in the J Jacobs Medical Center for the ICU and in the Thornton Hospital for the floor patients. So we've been able to uh, cohort patients appropriately. We have uh, all potential uh, therapies available. We are testing every single patient who gets admitted to the hospital, and we test every single patient who comes in for either a cardiac surgery or a cardiac procedure beforehand. If they get transferred to us and they haven't been able to get a test ahead of time, we do the rapid assay test where we can get the answer within the hour. And then finally, I would say our faculty and the Cardiovascular Center and the Cardiovascular Institute at UC San Diego has been involved in writing guidelines for the uh, national guidelines as to how to manage cardiovascular patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have been uh, serving as the resource for all of the other uh, healthcare systems in the county for the very, very ill patients. And I think Michael just gave an example of some of the extremely ill patients who needed services that no one else could offer. And we went there, uh, treated those patients, and brought the patients back to UC San Diego. So for all of you, uh, rest assured, uh, anything that's out there that's required for the care uh, of a COVID-19 patient, we have those abilities here. And, uh, I, and I think uh, the final, uh, maybe uh, before we go to questions, message I would like to leave you with is clearly this is going to be a big pressure on UC San Diego, the health system, the university, from a financial standpoint, we have got a number of projects on hold, number of faculty recruitments that are now going to be on hold. So it will affect us and it'll affect our ability 
uh, to um, our, our plans where we really wanted to be uh, very rapidly ascending to be one of the uh, premier cardiovascular institutes in the world. And I think we'll, clinically we're there, but from a volume standpoint and some of our growth plans will clearly be uh, hindered to some degree over the next one to two years. And that's where we might be reaching out to some of you for help. Uh, I think that's all I have to say, Michael. Uh, uh, we're ready for uh, questions, Dr. Brenner. Yep, I think so. Fantastic. I have a whole variety of questions. <laughs> Most of which I don't know the answers to, so you better you better help me. <laughs> okay, because of the audience, um, there's been several questions about um, heart transplant patients. Are, are they particularly vulnerable um, to COVID nineteen? Um, does, does this reflect their immune suppression? And uh, and then there's a very clever question someone asked: since no one's immune to COVID nineteen, why does it matter that you're immune suppressed? I, I, I think we should give this to Shami. What do you think? Sure. Uh, sure. You know, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> take, a, take a stab at it, Shami. Yeah, we can both probably <laughs> answer it. We'll both uh, attempt to answer it. I think in general, okay, uh, the, uh, the question is a twofold answer. If you're immunocompromised, it's how you respond to this infection. So you might have the same risk to acquire uh, to, to get the infection, but the su subsequent consequences for immunocompromised patients are much more severe than immunocompetent patients. So I'm not sure we have, uh, whether we know that if you're immunocompromised, are you more apt to get COVID-19? But one thing that's unequivocally clear around the world is for patients who have baseline cardiovascular comorbidities or are immunocompromised, and so a heart transplant patient clearly has a baseline cardiovascular disease and comorbidity being a transplant patient on top they're immunocompromised. So I think their outcome with COVID-19 would be substantially worse than somebody who doesn't have a cardiovascular disorder and is immunocompetent. Michael, you want to answer that? No, Please. I agree 100%. You know, I, I wish we knew the answer. And as Shami mentioned, it's not very clear, but we do know for sure that having the underlying uh, cardiovascular disease here at uh, a patient uh, who's immunocompromised uh, and is a cardiovascular patient is at higher risk. Now, um, uh, you know, there, there is some thought that, okay, if you're immunosuppressed and you get it, and you know, there's some thoughts about the um, cytokine storms that have been seen and if, if potentially uh, that could be uh, helpful in one way or another, but it's not. And, and there is no data to suggest anything like that. And the bottom line is that anybody who's immunocompromised, they're at risk of getting infections, and in particular with heart transplant patients, I think the, the consequences will be much more significant. Very good. Um, then there are questions with less complicated um, surgeries and whole heart transplants like what are the risks if you have um controlled um, um coronary artery disease what's the risk if you underwent you know stenting or bypassing you know and you're stable or you've had a, a um valvioplasty you're stable uh, uh, is there any knowledge about whether uh, patients like this are at increased risk of COVID-19 I can take a stab at, at it, Shami, you chime in. I mean, what we know right now, again, there's a lot of unknown, and of course, there's a um, uh, variety of research that are going on. 
What we do know is the number one risk factor, number one and two, are obesity and diabetes. And what happens is that a lot of these patients, by nature, also have you know, cardiac disease. Now, if somebody's, um, uh, I, I will have to speculate, if somebody is otherwise healthy, let's say, they have, they have um, uh, normal weight, they don't have diabetes, and let's say they had uh, a mitral valve problem or a uric valve right. problem that has been addressed before, yeah. I have not seen any data to suggest that those patients right. are at a higher risk uh, I mean, one would think so, but I haven't really seen any data to suggest that. And, and really, the, um, uh, the, the highest risk factor groups are uh, obese and diabetic patients. Yeah, and I think what I would add to that is, again, it's a twofold question. The risk of acquiring the disease, COVID-19, and secondly, the outcome associated with COVID-19. Right. So I think the risk for acquiring the disease might be no different amongst uh, whether you have certain comorbidities or not. But patients who have cardiovascular disease, uh, just like the elderly, just like the diabetics and the obese patients, are t tend to do worse when they get COVID-19. And I think that's the best way to answer that question. I would like to reiterate, though, that if you need one of those procedures, a valvuloplasty or a stent yeah. or bypass surgery, any of those things, uh, the risk of getting nosocomial or hospital-acquired COVID-19 is, is many-fold lower than what can happen if you don't get your disease treated. So definitely get your disease treated. Yeah, and also, especially when you look at uh, an institution like ours, the Cardiovascular Institute, the risk of potentially getting an infection uh, while you're getting treated uh, are much lower than you walking into a grocery store or, or any other public place, even if you're keeping your distance. So um, uh, even though patients may not do as well with underlying cardiac disease, if they do get COVID, that should not mean by any means that they should not pursue getting their care. As Shami mentioned, I want to reemphasize it again, consequences of not getting your care, and we've seen this. We're seeing this, and Shami can give you national data about uh, people having heart attacks at home. Uh, our emergency visits uh, nationally are, are significantly down, and patients are just staying home. They're getting chest pain. You know, we've had patients who've come in after three, four days of chest pain while they've been having a heart, uh, heart attack going on. So it should um, uh, really, the risk of not coming to the hospital and getting care are, are much higher than getting a potential infection. Yeah, there's actually several questions that, that ask for if you have any data about that. They, they say, you, both of you stated that there are decreased um, cardiovascular patients coming to the hospital out of probably out of fear of COVID-19 exposure. And do we have any actually hard data about has there been increased mortality during this time? Has there been increased morbidity during this time? Sure, David, I, I, I can tackle that. So originally the data came from Spain. Spain originally published the data uh, as to what the Spanish experience was. In the United States, uh, about two weeks ago, uh, there were nine uh, data from nine different cardiovascular centers around the United States showing that if you compare in the month of March, the number of heart attacks being treated at nine different large centers representing throughout the, you know, the geography of the whole country. From a year ago, there was a 38% lower number of uh, acute MI patients that came in. 
And then there are data that the number of 911 calls for sudden cardiac death have actually increased substantially uh, in the New York uh, state region, uh, certainly the metropolitan area of New York City. And this includes patients who do not have COVID-19. So I think, um, and, and I can tell you at our own institution, we've seen the same thing. And there's a patient that uh, had a myocardial infarction at home, stayed home too late. Uh, this, this literally happened this last week. Um, and finally came to us a couple of days after their heart attack, had a major cardiac complication because of the heart attack. And now we've taken the most advanced therapies for that patient. That problem was all, had almost disappeared uh, a year ago. So yes, there are hard published data, David. Very good. Okay, so here's, here's a hard question. <laughs> you ready? <laughs> so there's a lot of, of um, information out there about the relationship between ACE inhibitors, you know, angiotensin-converting enzyme 1 inhibitors, um, ARBs, which are um, angiotensin receptor blockers, and COVID-19, and hypertension. Well, how are they related? Okay, you, you want me to ask you? <laughs> uh -huh. You can start, and then I'll give you my take. Well, uh, I think it's a good question for Shami. And, uh, <laughs> you know, a, lot, a lot of uh, uh, patients, obviously, for hypertension are on ACE inhibitors. And, yeah. and because COVID-19 essentially um, attacks through these receptors, there's a thought that being on ACE inhibitors and having extra um, receptors, let's say, uh, may may potentially aggravate the response or or predispose uh, patients um, uh, for getting the infection. There are actually studies that are ongoing. Nobody yeah. really knows the answer. There and, and WHO and there there are other studies that are being performed. But one thing is for sure and for certain, and that is the recommendation, the guidelines right now is that you should not stop your ACE inhibitors if you're taking it for blood pressure control. There is absolutely no data to suggest that uh, a patient can be uh, at higher risk. There are theoretical data, but there isn't any hard data to suggest that the yeah. patient is at higher risk. And you should not stop your ARBs or ACE inhibitors. But um, that's the recommendation. I'll see what Shami has to offer. Hey, now, who, who says Dr. Madani is just a cardiac surgeon? That's a I, I, I was very impressed. I, I was very impressed by that answer. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the ACE inhibitor ARB story, I think, is going to take some time to get answered. It's completely controversial. Uh, the database, larger databases from China and from Italy and Spain uh, suggest that, in fact, they may actually be protective, yeah. even though initially we thought it would be harmful to be on an ACE inhibitor or ARB. So uh, the American College of Cardiology, SKY, and the American Heart Association has uh, come out with a universal guideline that if you're on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, uh, right now, do not discontinue it. Now, if you get newly diagnosed hypertension, should you start on an ACE inhibitor or ARB as opposed to an, a, a different agent? Uh, that's uh, up to you know, the physician treating you. I will say that Rohit Lumba, that Dr. Brenner knows well, uh, is uh, starting a study uh, that's already at UCSD and other centers where a very low dose ACE inhibitor will be given to patients 
with COVID-19 because there's some theoretical advantages of treating these patients with ACE inhibitors. So uh, overall, I would say if you're on an ACE inhibitor or ARP, do not discontinue it. And uh, the data uh, are controversial because we're getting mixed signals. Very good answer. Okay, um, here's one for me. Um, not, not like an answer, but I want to know the answer. <laughs> Since gyms and fitness centers um, are supposedly among the least safe uh, places, um, what do you know about um, the risk of exposure, about sweat and um, particles being airborne? Uh, good question. I, um, I actually don't know about uh, much about uh, sweats, but certainly, um, you know, a busy environment like a gym where, um, you know, participants are breathing heavily yeah. and, um, you know, that, that produces a lot of uh, airborne particles that may actually stay on the surfaces. And uh, certainly, they're, they're, even with strict guidelines of six feet, um, there it is a higher risk place for uh, re reasons that I just mentioned. Now, um, in terms of sweat itself, um, I, I really don't know the answer. I don't think anybody does. Uh, the problem with the uh, disease, as many of you know, is that uh, patients are not symptomatic uh, generally for the first at least 48 hours or so and maybe even up to four days. So what happens is that, let's say me, I could have gotten COVID today, been exposed to it, and have it in my system and be contagious, but not have a single symptom until Thursday. And during these two days, I may be going to the gym and I'll be exercising and uh, potentially exposing people uh, around me. And that's really the issue uh, with the gyms. I don't know, Shami, if you have any comments about the sweat. Yeah, so I, I don't know of any data regarding uh, sweat. I would say you address the respiratory aspect. I would tell our patients, if you have cardiovascular disease, I would tell this to a family member, I would avoid a public gym. Uh, even though the prevalence in various areas uh, could be low in your neighborhood. Uh, I will put a plug in for our cardiac rehab center, which we're opening up June 1st. So mm -hmm. as most of you know, we have the Gene and Hannah Step uh, Cardiovascular, you know, wellness and rehabilitation center. We are going to open it up June 1st and we've got it in a way that we will be extensively cleaning uh, all the equipment. We will be having uh, on a rotating basis. People will be well protected from one another and uh, everybody will have been tested who's going to come in to use it. So uh, for our cardiovascular patients, I would recommend at least for the next few months, we use that facility. Good plug. Um, here's a question. Um, is there any relationship between um, platelet um, inhibiting drugs and um, um, other types of cardiovascular drugs and COVID-19? Is there anything that's either positive or negative that, that the type of drugs that you're on going into um, COVID-19 um, um, infection? Okay. Uh, Michael, you want me to take that? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So what we have learned is that certain patients, and it's uh, unpredictable who, but certain patients who can get disseminated blood clots in small blood vessels. That can be in the kidney, can be in the heart, can be in the lungs, can even be in the brains. Uh, when uh, you have an anticoagulant that you take, 
this is, again, not very well tested, but the approach that's being taken is using anticoagulants rather than antiplatelet drugs. So if you happen to be on Coumadin or Xarelto, uh, what are called NOACs, uh, we feel that they may potentially be protective. If you're on antiplatelet agents like aspirin and or Plavix or Berlinta or uh, Effient, uh, I would say you should definitely continue because there's a reason, most often because you have a coronary stent. Uh, but otherwise, in itself, the antiplatelet drugs don't help the clots associated with COVID as much as an anticoagulant might. And we're going to learn more about this this time. Very good. Um, here's a very um, surgical question, which, which I think you, 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 you answered indirectly, but it says if you have COVID-19 patients and um, that require surgery and you have a special room, how, how do the surgeons deal with that? Because the, the feeling is that each surgeon has their own special place that, that they work. Do you have a generic COVID-19 room that anyone could use or, or, is, it, or is it more um, specific? Yeah, so uh, besides uh, cardiovascular institute and cardiac surgery, where we really require a special setup for the heart-lung machine and the perfusion uh, pump machine, um, the rooms, uh, the way they're built, they're very versatile. So they can pretty much be used for any specialty um, and including thoracic surgery and some of the come up some of cardiac surgeries that do not necessarily require cardiopulmonary bypass. So for all the other specialties, um, there there is one room that's um, being utilized for COVID patients, and it's been blocked off and um, uh, reserved for potential COVID patients, just like the cath lab has. Now for cardiovascular institute we have had that one room reserved and it was reserved for almost two months but it stayed empty and only recently we've allowed some patients to go in so let's say um and there hasn't been a single covid patient by the way and that's why we decided to utilize the room since it was sitting empty and we were in need of operating rooms within the institute but if we do get a covid patient essentially that room gets shut off and the COVID patient will go in there and we will not be utilizing that room until it's uh, what we call it's been terminally cleaned and probably not utilized for a few days before we allow any other patient go in. But at this point, uh, for non-cardiac uh, uh, surgery patients, the room is versatile enough that many different specialties can just use it. Very good. Um, this question also, um, um, you might imply an answer to it, but I'm curious. So, are you even despite you know down to essential services for the last two months? Um, are you still evaluating um, um, patients for transplant for transplantation yes. or, or lung? And are you continuing to perform heart and lung transplantations even uh, even during this time? Absolutely. So uh, these are essential services, and uh, we continue to. Um, evaluate patients and we continued both our lung and heart transplantation uh, program uh, during this time and I can't tell you exactly how many we did uh, but I can tell you just in the last week let's say we've done um, I want to say five uh, heart transplants uh, in the last uh, seven to ten days and uh, one lung transplant so it's um, and and prior to that it's been going on we never they, the heart and lung transplant services really never uh, slowed down. As uh, what one thing that we did see 
to some degree was that because the traffic across the country was lower, we had less accidents. So there were less amount of donors. Right. <laughs> uh, so the number, that's, the a, numbers, good, that's a good which, thing. Which is a good thing. Yeah. Which is a good thing. So the numbers went down maybe slightly, uh, but mm -hmm. that was because of donor availability. But now it's actually picked up again. All right. Here's a very specific question. Um, what complications um, do you know about um, with COVID patients who who have had who have CTEPH previously treated with BPA? Well, that's a very smart. Uh, that's a very smart question, and the short answer is that. And the short answer is, why don't you tell us what these stand for? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So, oh, so yes, for sure. So CTEF Thank is you. chronic. Uh, CTEF is chronic uh, thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, and we're known as the world leader for this disease. And what that is is essentially high blood pressures inside the blood vessels of the lungs as a result of obstruction related to blood clot formation. And BPA um, uh, was mentioned, and that's balloon pulmonary angioplasty. So these clots, you could either go in and surgically remove them, which is the curative option, or uh, if they're not surgical candidates, you could go in with balloon and, and balloon them and open up the vessels. So um, the question is, if somebody has this condition and has had um, uh, balloon pulmonary angioplasty, are they more prone or are they at a higher risk? And the uh, short answer is, uh, uh, quite honestly, we don't know. Um, uh, it goes back to a similar question that was answered before, that if you have an underlying uh, pulmonary disease and um, underlying cardiac disease, and this affects both because uh, high blood pressure affects the right side of the heart and the blood clots in the lungs obviously are um, affecting the lungs, that you may be at high risk. Now, if you have had treatment, and your pressures are not normal, and you have normal blood flow through your lungs, I want to say that you're not, you're not at potentially at, 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 high, at a higher risk, but uh, really um, probably more research needs to be done. We don't really need to uh, know the answer. And this, this group of patients are a very small group of patients worldwide. Um, my recommendation is that if you have the disease and you've had treatment, uh, Perhaps just be extra careful. Uh, we're all we're all at risk of potentially getting an infection, but uh, having underlying cardiopulmonary disease, you know, uh, puts the patient at a slightly higher risk, even if they've been treated for it. Shami, what do you think? I, I just have two comments to make. One is, uh, as Michael's pointed out, uh, CTEF is something UC San Diego has been known for for a long time. We've done thousands of surgeries. We now have done just over 500 balloon pulmonary angioplasty procedures, uh, and we are the largest center in the country for that. In the country itself, there's probably no more than 1,000 to maybe at most 1,200 procedures done. So it affects, uh, th there's still very few patients uh, involved, but I would categorize as if you have CTEF, whether you've been treated with BPA or not, uh, you would be at higher risk for, from COVID-19 than somebody who does not have CTEF. It's one more cardiovascular disorder. Okay. It's sort of a um, pathophysiological question. It says, um, what's the role of this idea that, um, that might um, introduce a cytokine storm in um, causing um, inflammation or immune response that will um, potentially damage the heart? As opposed to, I, I think what they're saying is opposed to a direct infection of COVID-19 of the heart. 
Um, all right. Well, I think we can probably both attack this. There's this, uh, and, and whether it's theoretical or active, um, so the direct infection is a viral myopericarditis that patients get. The cytokine storm, in the midst of that cytokine storm, and it's been uh, observed that you can have normal cardiac function and very acutely, within minutes to an hour, all of a sudden, the heart muscle just stops contracting. So you can have normal ejection fraction, which is say 60%, can drop down to 10%. And, uh, and so, so that's the observation with the cytokine storm. Michael? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if we know um, the uh, underlying pathophysiology for sure, but that's, that's um, as Shami mentioned, you know, viral myocarditis we see, you know, with um, other forms of uh, viral infections as well. So it's not unique to COVID. Obviously, it's uh, getting a lot of publicity and, and um, Shami may know uh, in, you know, I was trying to look up the incidence of uh, viral myocarditis, let's say with influenza, um, um, about a week or so ago versus COVID. And maybe Shami, you know the answer to this. I, I, I was not, I, I was not successful to see if there is really a higher incidence of viral myocarditis with uh, COVID compared to other viruses. But viral myocarditis we see, and you know, when you have a viral infection, it can affect the muscle of the heart. It's a gradual thing that ha that can happen. And, uh, you know, some patients actually fully recover. If you support them during that time, let's say with the ECMO machine that I mentioned, the heart-lung machine that I mentioned, they actually recover from that viral infection. Now, the cytokine storm is completely different. This is not, um, this is something that happens as a result of uh, hyperimmune response. And as Shami mentioned, um, it's very acute. Um, and the muscle of the heart pretty much... Uh, uh, goes from a normal ejection fashion to a very, uh, not beating, essentially. Shami, is there a difference between um, uh, myocarditis from COVID than other viruses? Than other viruses. You know? So, Michael, again, unknown about the prevalence. The report out of China was 2 to 4% have some degree of myopericarditis with right. COVID. And, um, and then you can also get a focal one, which is not as severe. So it, it seems like it's highly variable. What we do know is if you do get some degree of myocardial involvement, those patients uh, do significantly worse. Yeah. Here's a question. Um, is there a difference between men and women who have cardiovascular disease and they get COVID-19? Uh, it's true across the board that uh, men do, are, do worse than women with COVID-19. And it's been also true in a multivariable analysis that uh, uh, men do worse than women uh, from, uh, if they have baseline cardiovascular. All right, we have one more question. Oh, here's one. That it's just about COVID-19. It's not about, about cardiovascular. It's about how reliable the antibody tests. Michael, you want to take a stab at it? <laughs> no, no, I was going to ask David to take yeah, a stab David at it. Yeah, David is the best <laughs> person to answer David, that. David, you're the best person yeah. to answer that. Yeah. So um, just, just very briefly, um, the antibody tests um, show that you've had the virus and that you've, you've had immune response to it. Um, there are both false positives and false negatives. Um, and the concern with um, false positives, meaning you, you test positive but don't have the antibodies, is that it would cross-react with other coronaviruses that are very similar. Um, what's more interesting, though, is what it means. And the big 
um, question is, does it confer immunity? If you hope to, to have a vaccine, you hope that you can, your, your body's capable of immune reaction that you can amplify up through a vaccine. So um, right now people are looking and follow up and seeing if you've had a, a COVID-19 infection and you have an IgG, the, the main prolonged um, antibody, is it neutralizing? In other words, will it prevent the virus from infecting and will it protect the patient? And there are mixed results. There are some evidence of people who apparently test positive again and they, they don't know if it's a testing result or it's, or it's a real second infection. And the, um, the vaccine people are very interested in whether or not immune. There, there are some animal studies where they gave them COVID-19, um, you know, non-human primates, they let them recover, they gave them COVID-19 again, and they did not get reinfected. So that was quite encouraging that, that, you, that you were protected after you, after you cleared your infection. So, so we'll have to see. Um, right now, I don't know what to do with the antibody tests. I don't know how to use them clinically. I mean, a lot of people are curious. They, they thought they had COVID-19, and a month later, they asked me to test their antibodies. And so we do, but I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. It does not mean like you're Superman and you're immune and you count on it. We really don't know what to do, what to do with that. So um, last question, um, this is an interesting question. If, if you have other types of um, pneumonia, does it have the same effect on cardiac patients as COVID-19 or is there something very specific about COVID-19 that we're making these associations? Yeah, Shami, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm trying to uh, understand the question. I would say the association that's pretty clear with COVID-19 is that if you, uh, if you have baseline cardiovascular disease, then this infection, whether you have a pneumonia or not, uh, has a much more adverse prognosis for those patients. Now, if you have a bacterial or other viral pneumonia, uh, it is a true observation that patients with cardiovascular disease in general do worse with any superimposed infection of the pulmonary system. Now, whether COVID-19 is dramatically worse as compared yeah. to other uh, viruses or bacteria, that's a very good question. I don't think I have a clear answer to that. Yeah, I don't think we, we have an answer to that. Uh, it's a very good question. I mean, but one thing is for sure is that um, the way COVID really affects the cardiovascular system in general, uh, uh, both um, you know, the heart as well as the vascular system with um, uh, um, you know, high risk of inflammation, clot formation. It's very unique uh, that we don't see it uh, generally with other viruses. And there are, there are reports uh, of young, healthy patients who have significant uh, clotting within their vessels, normal vessels, um, and have significant vascular disease as a result of it. And, and that's not uh, typically seen. Um, and um, I think that's unique, unique to the COVID uh, virus or coronavirus. So we ran a tiny bit over, but it was really a lot of fun. <laughs> there, are, there are half a dozen really good questions. So I promise that um, we will get them to um, Dr. Madani Mahmood, and you can maybe answer the other questions online just, just to finish them up. And I want to thank both of you. That was really fun. 
And I want to thank our audience uh, that uh, everyone stuck around. <laughs> I, I can keep track of the participants. <laughs> and, um, it's, um, it, 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 I know it's not as much fun as being in person, but I, I really think this is a really great topic and, and, and two great discussions. So, so thank you, everyone. And everyone stay safe and well. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.